Festive Yuletide greetings, everyone. Welcome to this very special episode of Lighting the Pipes. It's our LTP selects for the holiday season. Myself, Scott, and Josh, my reader-in-arms across the pond, have gone back through the archives of our show, and we've picked out a little tasty morsel here, a little holiday treat for you listeners, and we're going to get straight to it. Not so hot take. This is probably the most humorous Sherlock Holmes adventure. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely up there, isn't it? I just can't think of a comparison, really. There's like humor of, throughout the series, but yeah, not, there not is so much humor like sprinkled this. in. But this one, it seems like it's, it feels like it's the Christmas episode of Sherlock it, Holmes. It is, it is the Christmas episode of Sherlock Holmes. We're speaking about the adventure of the Blue Carbuncle from 1892. And this was included in the volume of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. That's right, so yeah. The first yeah. volume of short stories. That's right. Pit dug out our old episode, polished it off, tidied it up, and we're here to reintroduce it because it's actually one of these episodes that I haven't listened to in a long time. Uh, we, we, I think, have got a bit better at what we do since then, but the chat was raw, the chat was fresh. A little bit. And, and the story, the story is definitely worth revisiting, isn't it? These are the raw garage tapes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, think of them that way if you want to. What do you recall, Josh, about the story? What do you recall uh, liking about this one? It's the Christmas Sherlock Holmes story. The only one, yeah. The only one set during the festive <laughs> Sorry, that was my Carol of the Bells. It was beautiful. It, it, was it? <laughs> well... It's a season of giving, so I might as well give you that. Ooh, nice. <laughs> I will uh, I will apply the aloe vera to that. Thank you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the adventure of the Blue Carbuncle, Josh, I remember when we read this in May, uh, in April or May of 2017. We're going back to 2017 for this episode. Um, it wasn't quite seasonal time. at the time. Before the dark time. <laughs> yeah, considerably before the dark time. But... Regardless, uh, it definitely has a Dickensian, you know, a Christmas Carol vibe to it a little bit, because even though, you know, he's a high-functioning something, uh, Sherlock Holmes was able to spread some holiday cheer, even though he was somewhat annoyed at doing so uh, in the story. We've got fun stuff in here. we got Breckenridge, the poultry dealer at Covent Garden, which is a lot of fun, that stuff. We have Henry Baker, his sort of silliness at the beginning of the story and Holmes deducing the hat and Watson needing to play off that as well. Uh, then of course you've got you've got Holmes for the th- maybe just three or four times in the entire canon takes his moral compass for a ride, doesn't he? And he decides he does, at yeah. the end of the story, in the spirit of forgiveness, he decides to let this young guy go. And hmm, we got Inspector Peterson whose wife finds <laughs> whose wife finds the jewel in the crop with a of the, the goose. That's right. So it, it's, a, it's a case of mistaken goose, isn't it? It's a case of mistaken goose. It's a wild goose. No, it's a non-wild goose chase. It's a pedestrian goose chase. Use, it's a pedestrian goose chase. I'll, I'll give it that. Yes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about the blue carbuncle again. You know, these LTP uh, selects are, are really fun to do, to, you know, just to go back and revisit. You can kind of think of this as our, you know, our special edition THX, uh, extra, <laughs> scene, extra scenes, extra yeah, CGI yeah. version of what we did before. So we <laughs> CGI, hope you enjoy huh? it. <laughs> so Jar Jar Binks doesn't run through the back of my video here. Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Uncanny Valley. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. The Uncanny or sh- Valley of Fear. 
<laughs> yeah, or Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Gungan City. Yeah, that true. I'm that would have been an interesting story if if we ever got a chance to get to that one. <laughs> That's a ridiculous concept that would be. Yeah. Like, Holmes' reaction to Jar Jar would be similar to Obi-Wan's another pathetic <laughs> life form. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right. I, anyway, well, we do have an interesting story here. It is a caper more than it is, you know, a, a, a dramatic investigation. There's humor in this Not story where, that's yeah. right, exactly. There's no, there's no homicide, great villainy at play here. There's a young man, James Ryder, who, with the help of a, a house, or sorry, a, a maid at the hotel, uh, Catherine Cusack, they get themselves wrapped up in a little uh, a little bit of their own romancing the stone, I guess it's fair to say. And <laughs> right, okay. They get themselves twisted up and kind of in deep waters. They're in deep waters, aren't they? Needless to in say, o- they, they pin it on a poor electrician who was just coming in to make sure the Countess's lights were still... Mm-hmm. Or her heating so, or gas pipe or something. I can't remember what it was, but... it was. I think it was... Yeah, he was an electrician. I think it had to do with the, the heating, if I'm not... Yes. Whatever the case, uh, he gets more than he bargained for when he showed up for work that morning because he finds himself stuck in in prison and accused of stealing one of the Countess Morker's uh, delicious gems, the blue carbuncle, the famed blue carbuncle. And Holmes, of course, uh, inadvertently, through the... inadvertently gets himself wrapped up in the case because of uh, a man named Henry Baker whose hat is left at the scene of a crime brought to him by Inspector Peterson and A to B to C. You know, we get all sorts of strange twists and turns for a rather simple story. Not an it's inspector. A fun, it's a fun one. Sorry, it, you know? I'll be that guy. I'll what be, is I'll be what that is guy. Uh, he's not an inspector. He was a commissioner. Commissioner. Thank you. Right. Commissioner yeah. Peterson. Yeah. It's kind of like a civil servant who gets to wear a uniform. They're not really part <laughs> okay. of any kind of law enforcement agency or, or something. That's what yeah, I understand is, of what they yeah. do. I and mean, there's a lot of them here in Ottawa. Like they say, if you go on the bus and they say, join the commissioners and like, no, thank you. Hmm. And I continue to read, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so basically someone who isn't paid much and goes out onto the street to break up crime when they see it happening. Essentially, like a vigilante, eyes, like eyes Batman. In the street. Yeah, like Batman. So Peterson is Pe- Batman. Peterson is Batman. No, okay. 100%. <laughs> Talk about year one. <laughs> We're going way back. <laughs> Aren't we just? Yeah. Incidentally, well, anyway. there's an mm-hmm. animated film uh, that was released a couple of years ago called Batman by Gaslight, and it's Batman in a Victorian setting. So Very that's kind of cool. cool. Very cool. And I believe there's a new Batman Christmas thing coming out too, isn't there? Not that I'm aware of, uh, but that's no, think, pretty cool. I, I think there is. I think there is, like Batman, like an anim- like an animated film or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just looking it up now. Well, okay. Well, I, uh, DC Animated puts out a lot of stuff, so I wouldn't be surprised. It's not Christmas with the Joker. That's the animated. No, series, that's right? a that's Batman animated series. I always watch that around Christmas time. It's a great episode. Mark Hamill, one of the best voice fa- one of the best voice actors ever. Batman holiday season. Merry Little Batman. Merry Little Batman will pre- will premiere exclusively on Amazon Prime on December eighth, two thousand and twenty three. Interesting. I have, I have just in time for the holidays. Yeah, yeah. Merry Little Batman. It uh, da, 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 a new DC holiday special that sees Damian Wayne and Robin 
become a miniature Dark Knight. Uh, Damian Wayne, Batman, and Talia El Ghul's kid. I think that's okay. what he's supposed to be. Yeah. Right. Is that a bit like a Scrappy Doo and Scooby Doo thing? Who knows? It sounds like uh, it's it's very uh, kid oriented, and that's good for them. That's that's cool. But it's but as we it appears that detective detective characters and superheroes they have their Christmas specials, and the Blue Carbuncle is Sherlock Holmes Christmas special. That's right. That's right. And I know we've got a good Jeremy Brett adaptation of this one too so after people reread the story or listen to our chat about it they can go check that granada production out can't they absolutely yeah it's uh it's a good time and brett's having a brett's a brett isn't exactly a scrooge in the episode but uh he tries he uh mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he, well his i say he tries because i'm thinking about Holmes. but every time i watch a, a brett adaptation i'm so convinced that brett is sherlock holmes that i kind of lose uh, the the lines of re- the, the lines of reality and non-reality seem to blur you know what mm-hmm, i mean because mm-hmm. it just, sure. just carries it off so well uh so that said back to blue carbuncle so we got poor john horner if that was his first name i can't recall this electrician uh he's been blamed by one of the one of the uh jerk off inspectors at scotland yard uh what was what was the inspector's name this time around it wasn't Lestrade, um, it was somebody else. Yeah, I'm not sure. Was it, it's, uh, it wasn't someone who never comes back. I, no, it yeah, Gregson. it wasn't Gregson, because he, cause he's probably the most competent of them, if I recall. But um, anyways, this guy was more about, he needs to find, he's pressured to find where the carbuncle is, and his only real, and his only real avenue towards that is Horner. But Horner's been picked out because, you know, of classist bullshit, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's why... And and because he's been so well set up by uh, Ryder and by Cusack, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just one second, just one second, Josh, are you trying to suggest, even for a moment, that class bigotry comes into the Sherlock Holmes stories? It's a hot take, I know, but <laughs> I have my theories, and I'll share them with you if you like. Yeah, I think it's groundbreaking yeah. stuff here that you're scraping into. Yeah, I mean, it's not as groundbreaking or as as finite a science at that time, like for example, what's that science at the time where they measured human intelligence? Uh, phrenology. Like the, the, phrenology. Yeah. Which Sherlock Holmes was kind of into. He but. was. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he was. And, and I think we talk about that in a, uh, in an episode. It might even be this one, you know, we talk about phrenology. We do. Yes, we do. Because he's sizing because they the talk hat. With the big he's head. sizing the hat. The, That's right. The That's sizing right. the hat. Yes. A man with a big brain. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking here at my trusty at my trusty Klinger edition, and I notice that it's Inspector Bradstreet B division. It's the one you're looking for. So we have the B version of mm. Scotland Yard here. <laughs> That's <laughs> true, but you know Bradstreet did have a role to play in the Man with the Twisted Lip. I think it was him, wasn't it? Who um, oh. it earlier uh, didn't didn't he work? When Holmes went to wash the face of Sir ne- um, Neville Sinclair and reveal him as Hugh Boone, or vice versa, was it Neville Brad Sinclair? Street. Neville Sinclair was the, was the guy who was pretending oh. to be the beggar. Yeah, Saint Clair. Yeah, sorry, Saint Clair. Um, yeah, yeah. Neville Sinclair is uh, Timothy Dalton in The Rocketeer. That was the name of like the actor slash Nazi spy oh, cool. that he played cool. in in the nice. movie. 
He's like basically <laughs> supposed to be like an evil Errol Flynn, essentially, is what his character was. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, just before we, we close shop here on this one, I think the Blue Carbuncle's got everything that you might want for a short holiday read. It has uh, it has poultry. Poultry's big this time poultry. of year. Well, it has cold weather. Definitely. It has Christmas cold shopping. Weather. It has a warm pub yep. and ale. It has friends yes. and family gathering. It has a beautiful gift yes. of a jewel. And a little bit of a forgiving ending here, without saying too much about it. A forgiving ending that reminds us at this time of year that we all have a way and a hand to help each other. I think he wasted his generosity personally. Because <laughs> yeah, there was yeah. nothing redeemable okay. about Ryder. But <laughs> no, you're I, right. I don't know. Uh, let's just leave our listeners, before they get into the episode, let's just leave them with the words of Les Klinger, the wonderful Les Klinger, who edited and annotated uh, many different home stories. This is Les Klinger's introduction to the story. Esteemed home scholar and writer Christopher Morley referred to the Blue Carbuncle as, quote, a Christmas story without slush. And some readers favor the story, the only tale in the canon set in the holiday season, over such traditional fare as Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Like Frank Capra's brilliant film It's a Wonderful Life, the tale of the stolen gem commemorates the triumph of compassion over justice. There are gems within the story, to be sure. Holmes's tour de force deductions from hapless Henry Baker's hat, Holmes's deception of Breckenridge, the sporting seller of geese, and a clever but ultimately foolish plan of the criminal to smuggle the Countess's carbuncle into his fence in Kilburn. What draws us back each year, however, is the evident warmth of the friendship between Holmes and Watson, as Watson travels from his married household to visit his bachelor friend and wish him compliments of the season. Sherlock Holmes, too, appears more human, less the perfect reasoner, again taking the law into his own hands. After all, he concludes magnanimously, it is the season of forgiveness. Now, whether we agree with Les Klinger's appraisal of the story or not, there's some interesting food for thought. So, wherever this finds you, however this finds you, we wish you a very happy Christmas, and thank you for your continued support. We'll be back very soon with another seasonal tale, uh, just before the calendar turns over, Celia Fremen's The Long Shadow. Yes. Enjoy. An interesting collection and variation of stories, uh, these three tales. They certainly are. I'm really looking forward to, to thrashing these out with you. Two of these stories in particular, I think, are, are very well written and have a lot of depth and character and uh, almost almost Dickensian in a way in, in, some, in some parts of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just kind of really made the world of Sherlock Holmes and he lives in come alive. Cool. Well, why don't we just fire into it? The first one that we're going to look at was published in the January uh, 1891 edition of The Strand. So this was basically Christmas reading for the men and women who picked up the edition uh, at the time, and not surprisingly, it carries with it a holiday theme. It's uh, it's Arthur Conan Doyle's Christmas Carol. K- kind of, yeah, the adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. This this was a book that was, uh, sorry, a story well-received at the time and still well-received today as, mm-hmm. you know, a Christmas-type story, um, but it, it does have its twists. 
to take us through a plot summary. So at your leisure, sir. Enjoy. So it begins with um, uh, Watson paying a visit to Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes uh, was just been visited by Commissioner Peterson. And uh, Peterson has left off this little, this old hat, beat up looking hat with Sherlock Holmes. And, and, and essentially what, what's happening here is, is that Watson and us, we observe Holmes examining this hat for all his my, my minute details. Um, the hat also came with a geese, um, <laughs> with, with, with a, a dead geese that Mr. Peterson brought home. The story is, is, is that Peterson, as a commissioner, he's doing his rounds in, in the neighborhood, and he notices this big tall guy walking home with the geese, and he's being surrounded by local ruffians in the area. And he wants to, he wants to pick a fight, and uh, he ends up, tr- you know, trying to run away and, and swinging his arms away to get away from them. And he ends up breaking a window, and then of course he flees because he sees the commissioner coming, and he and he leaves the geese and his hat as as he runs off. So so the commissioner he goes to Holmes and he brings Holmes the hat, seeing if seeing what he could do to possibly find it. Meanwhile, Holmes sends uh, the commissioner Peterson back to his place with the geese. So during this time, we have a whole tête-à-tête between Watson and Holmes as they analyze the hat, and Holmes pretty much, in in a very polite kind of kind of fashion, makes the observation of how the the, the lack of deductions that Watson makes about the hat, about how it looks, and that is very well described. But then he shows, and then he mentions to us all the different uh, conclusions that he's come to about him being uh, not happy with his marriage or, you know, feeling that uh, he's come to, he's come into bad luck. All these different telltale signs were told through the, through the writing uh, that this, this, the owner of this hat is, is dealing with. Um, at this moment, uh, Commissioner Peterson returns holding a blue carbuncle in his hand. And this was apparently found in the crop of the geese that he brought home that... Uh, that, that this poor tall guy, uh, Henry Baker, uh, left behind, along with his hat. Uh, the blue carbuncle, as we learn, belongs to uh, the Countess Morcar, and it was stolen from her. A man named John Horner, who was a, accused as a thief previously, uh, who was a plumber in the household, he was accused of the crime and is now being detained for it. So the blue carbuncle is now in the hands of Holmes and the commissionaire. So... So Holmes finds it pretty prudent then that if the crop of the geese was brought over by this individual, that they better find this Henry Baker on the basis that uh, to see how much involved with the crime that he actually is. So Holmes puts an ad out and uh, Baker, Henry Baker, he shows up for his hat and he's also come, shows up for his geese. And of course, he has no clue whatsoever about what, what was in the contents of the animal's crop. I will put a comment here that I did read that apparently geese do not have crops. Did you know that? <laughs> I did. I did not know that. No. A, a crop is kind of like this type of. It's, it's like a throat essentially, uh, down like it's a lower throat within the body before it hits the stomach, or something along those lines that a lot of fowl birds have, like ducks and whatnot, um, if I'm not mistaken. But geese apparently do not have a crop, and this is considered one of the big blunders of Arthur Conan Doyle's writing. Or of his research, of his research at least. So it is. It is rated as a proper blunder, is it? Yes, it is. Yeah. So say the internets, anyway. Well, I'm just I'm I'm double checking through my copy of uh, Klinger's um, 
uh, blah, 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 annotations because I didn't remember seeing anything coming through. But you, you go ahead, keep keep going through, and if I see something, I'll, I'll interject. Okay, very good. Yes, so so we learned from from Henry Baker that the geese he purchased uh, from the Alpha Inn, where Holmes and Watson then visit, and the owner there, um, Breckenridge, uh, has a bit of a an argument with Holmes. Um, Holmes basically being provocative to carry more information when Mr. Breckenridge was not really up to discussing his customers or or, or his business, and it's through a certain kind of uh, passive aggressive form of uh, tricking the man into in, into a, into a wager that is able to get the information that he wants. Uh, that the uh, the geese are town born, not from outside the country. During this time, as they're leaving, another man shows up inquiring about the geese, and Breckenridge also sends him off as well. Now, this man is Matthew Ryder. Uh, Matthew Ryder is in fact the um, I guess he's like a hotel attendant uh, in 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 the place of residence where the Countess Morcar was was staying. Pretty much by cornering Ryder, Holmes and Watson are able to devise that Ryder, who was uh, working in the hotel with the Countess's maid, uh, Catherine McCormick. Sorry, Catherine McCormick. My apologies. I'm thinking of someone else entirely. Catherine Cusack, I should say. Yeah. Um, they determine that um, it was actually Ryder and Cusack who t- who schemed to steal the carbuncle and frame John Horner for the crime. We learn um, that uh, Mr. Uh, Ryder is probably someone who could be a candidate for one of those America's Dumbest Criminal <laughs> programs. Just on the basis of, and I quote <laughs> the text, I would outsmart the most um, brilliant, brilliant detective in the world by basically using a geese as a way to smuggle a carbuncle. Uh-huh. We learn essentially that uh, his sister, uh, Miss Oakshot, uh, where the geese came from, uh, he basically spots one that has a black bar on its tail and decides to use that to smuggle the carbuncle by shoving it down its throat, <laughs> knowing that it had a crop. Again, Arthur Conan Doyle's blunder even worse because the narrative is so dependent upon this thing of the of the of the, the goose having a crop and not choking. It on is. The, uh, it is. <clears throat> yes. I found I found some information on that now, and the reason I didn't see it when I was reading is because it it's an appendicized point. But I'm I'm quite happy to fill in some gaps here for you on it. Yeah, we'll take a brief interlude. Well, it's it's not so much an interlude as it is a um, a segue into you know contextualizing what you're what you're telling us. Um, of course. Right. A goose has no crop. Miss Mildred Sammons states in a letter to the Chicago Tribune on December 26, 1946. After reading the story, she got quite upset, I suppose. Dr. J. Finley Christ, to whom her note was sent for comment, uh, replies, Mildred Sammons announcement in the line of December 26 that a goose has no crop produced a considerable shock among Sherlock Holmes experts. Consultation of one ornithologist, two zoologists, and three poultry dressers, together with ocular demonstration, made it abundantly clear that the lady is correct. Holmes made an elementary error with which the Baker Street Irregulars should have noted long ago. S. Tupper Bigelow in The Blue Enigma seeked to defend Holmes's knowledge of the geese. He consulted the Encyclopedia Britannica Library Research Service. Quote, We contacted members of the Department of Ornithology at the National at the Natural Museum, History Museum of Chicago. I'm quoting below their comments to this office. 
We do not know of a goose that has a crop, properly speaking. Many geese have a gullet that distends, but it is not a dilation of the esophagus or esophagus. I just channeled our grandfather there by esophagus Mm. before its entrance into the thorax. In other words, it's not a crop, whatever it is. Dr. Ernst Bloomfield Zeisler then enters the fray, taking Holmes' side in the matter. He quoted experts in the poultry department of the Agricultural School of the University of New Hampshire, who state, quote, Geese have crops. The crop is simply not as visible as on a turkey, but apparently all barnyard fowl do have them. The Marquis of Donegal, then head of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London and editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal, asked two more sources, the Minister of Agriculture and Fish and Mr. Edward Moult, a practical farmer. The ministry wrote, and so it continues, and the note goes on for another page and a half. Basically, this is this is a debate that still, as I think you intimated um, at the beginning, it still kind of fuels people up. Like, did Conan Doyle make a massive mistake? The ch- chances are he did. He wasn't thinking that deeply about his research. He's like, yeah, they probably have a crop. Let's go with that. They're geese, after all. So interesting how that story has sparked generations of, you know, back and forth teeter-tottering. It's, it's kind of like the modern fandom, you know, like the, the kind of like the, the proto-modern mm. fandom in, in the sense of how people writing in and saying no, no, and the and the homeless fanboys getting angry that someone would dare say that Arthur Conan Doyle yeah. wrote something incorrect. And, yeah, and, and like you say, like people writing in thinking, oh, I've got one over Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah. totally like an internet forum right then and there. Like, it is. It really is. Cool. Anyway, right, fi- finish <laughs> up, pal. Sorry, I just, I'm just glad I was able to give you that light anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. Very illuminating. Uh, the thing is, is though, is that uh, his sister has many geese, of course, and of course, it would seem kind of, you know, logical to assume that a lot of geese geese have black markings on their tails and, and whatnot. So having one black bar on one tail out of, of a whole bunch of geese, I dare say the chances of having another black mark is very possible. Mm-hmm. So essentially there was more than one goose with a black mark on, on its tail that um, essentially our our master criminal, our proto-Moriarty here, I guess, uh, <laughs> did not realize this. So what happened is that the, the wrong goose got sold to Henry Baker and... Uh, and the wild goose chase comes to an end with Holmes realizing that this guy is not any kind of devious criminal mastermind and decides to spare him from uh, future incarceration and, and a criminal livelihood by um, pulling a Dickens Christmas carol and uh, letting him go. Do you think that this is where the expression wild goose chase came from? You know, um, it's very possible. I'm curious to, to to investigate that idiom and see exactly where it originated from. Hmm. Interesting. I, I do yeah. believe it's possible. It was a wild. It was a wild goose chase, though. That's for sure. It was that. Yeah. Um. It, well, the the goose was dead, but I suppose it's still wild, isn't it? Yeah. Or, or the wild carbuncle chase. The no, wild. I, the wild carbuncle chase. Yeah. It, it doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? It it doesn't. No. But um, overall, Josh. I I mean, what do you think? Do you like this story? Yeah, I thought it was pretty entertaining, and it was a nice to see more of the human side of Sherlock Holmes, and it was fun, and I enjoyed the characters that we encountered through the way. I loved Breckenridge, the uh, inn owner. He was great. Yeah, he was. No, he's not the inn owner. He's he wasn't the inn owner. He was the uh, the Covent Garden poulterer. The Covent Garden poulterer. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I missed. Uh, there's one thing I missed in my outline. There was I missed uh, the Alpha Inn leading to the Covent Garden That's... operator. That'll yeah. be that'll be fleshed out in the wash. Don't worry. 
Exactly. That, that, that that's good. Just don't put any colors with the wash. Uh, no, of course not. Not not a white not a white load anyway. And not a white load. No. All right. So you want to light these pipes and uh, get talking about this one? Yes, sir. All right. Well, um, I think it's only fitting that we we light a Christmas flavored pipe. What do you think? Okay. So what uh, mistletoe? Mistletoe. Um, I don't know. Is gin flavor? It's funny because thinking back to the episode where we talked about snuff and all the different flavors that you were you, you know you could get of snuff. Um, I'm trying to think of one that might suit a Christmassy tale like this, so that the tobacco is is flavored. Uh, keep keep thinking, Gin- ginger maybe ginger. Ginger, yeah. How about turkey flavored? Uh... <laughs> turkey flavored or, or or geese flavored in this case. Pipes. P for principles. That's our boys, Sherlock and Watson. I investigation the story that how the case how the case is laid out before us. The examination of the writing of the story it, it, itself, the nuances, the metaphors, the symbols, the power of the text, the um, entertainment value of the text. Then we have P for perpetrators. So the villains of the piece. <laughs> quote unquote in this case and then of course we have e the environment uh we're talking about the environs of london uh, or outside in, in this case just how the atmosphere of these places of these locales what they bring to the story uh, and how and how well they're described in, in terms of bringing the story and finally we have the sporting cast so the the uh, so the witnesses the the suspects you know, and the regular characters that uh, populate Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson's world. As you said uh, in your plot summary, this isn't really... Oh, no, I'm sorry. As you said uh, towards the beginning, this isn't really a great example of Holmes being... Outside of his work with the hat at the beginning, really being terribly deductive. They they just kind of do good detective work here. They follow leads mm-hmm. and they end up in the right places. Like there's nothing phenomenal about it. And he doesn't really discover anything because he's dependent, isn't he, Holmes, on uh or sorry, the plot is dependent on the commissioner coming back in saying, Holy shit, look what my wife found in the guts, right? Yeah, it's kind of one of those like Ruby Goldberg kind of mach- uh, machines, you know, those cartoons of where someone puts like a marble, uh, say, for example, you want to you, you want to water a plant. And so you put a marble on like a chute and the marble goes down the chute and then it then it goes into like some sort of like whirly gig and then spins around and yeah, then yeah. triggers some 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 dominoes and then the dominoes fall over and that domino triggers a switch and the string tied to a boot swings in the air. And then kicks the, uh, the and kicks the uh, water uh, uh, pitcher over, and so it sort of waters the plant. Mm. And 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 I do wonder if Conan Doyle knew going into this story how he had structured it and, and kind of what he wanted out of it. If oh, it was, I have no if, doubt. If it was going to be a tic tac toe kind of mouse trappy game like that, then in this case he layers at the start of the story uh, a lot of about Holmes and how clever he is maybe because there's not a lot of the actual cleverness that comes through later on and that might be a theme we discuss here in this story in in, in this episode that Holmes maybe isn't isn't quite as clever in these three tales as he has been in the past but 
I'm just going to start, if uh, you'll indulge me, by looking a little bit here at how Holmes is characterized at the start of the story. Watson has rocked up, and Holmes has got this hat, <clears throat> and the conversation, as we've seen before, um, progresses fairly predictably. Uh, I, yes. can see, I can see nothing, said I, handing it back to my friend. On the contrary, Watson, you can see everything. You fail, however, to reason from what you see. You're too timid in drawing your inferences. Then pray, tell me what it is that you can infer from this hat. He picked, <laughs> he picked it up and gazed at it in the peculiar introspective fashion, which was characteristic of him. It's perhaps less suggestive than it might have been, he remarked, and yet there are a few inferences which are very distinct, and a few others which represent at least a strong balance of probability. That the man was highly intellectual is, of course, obvious upon the face of it, because he has a big head. Like, I never liked that. I don't understand that, but whatever. Although... I, that just, uh, that has something to do with... Um, there's some field of science that was that was very popular at the time. That phrenology. was also very racist, actually. Yeah. About how the size of like, of, of, of some of people's heads was uh, determined uh, brain capacity and whatnot. I know. Um, I guess that... Phrenology? Was... Is it phrenology, I think it is? Or... Yeah, that, that's what I thought it was. I might be wrong, but... Um, anyway... Uh, yeah, so Mr. Burns liked that method of uh, uh, use like these big calipers on someone's skull, and you measure like how big their skull is, or something along those lines. Well, I think the theory still has its supporters. Certainly, in the war, uh, the Second World War, it did. I, I, I had the opportunity to visit Sachsenhausen uh, labor and um, concentration camp in Germany, just outside of Berlin, a few years ago. And while I was there. Uh, they had preserved quite a few of the boards and um, medical research that were going on there that the Nazis had undertaken, and phrenology was part of it. You know, the, the measurement of skulls and hair and eyes and, you know, symmetry and all that stuff. Anyway, sorry, uh, right, so we were talking about Holmes. Uh, da, 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 yeah, that the man was highly intellectual is, of course, obvious upon the face of it, and also that he was fairly well-to-do within the last three years, although he has now fallen upon evil days. He had foresight, but has less now than formerly, pointing to a moral retrogression, which, when taken with the decline of his fortunes, seems to indicate some evil influence, probably drink, at work upon him. This may account also for the obvious fact that his wife has ceased to love him. And that's another thing, too. Just because his hat's dirty doesn't mean his, his wife doesn't love him. Maybe she's just lazy. Maybe she doesn't yeah. want to. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe she's modern. Maybe she doesn't want to pick up after her husband and tidy all of his things. You know, maybe this, she wants him to to notice how shitty it is, and, and you know, like man up. I think that's just an example of Sherlock Holmes being a little bit too focused on his deductions and not putting into effect the the, the myriad of 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 uh, intricacies of human relationships. Perhaps. It is funny, though, that at this stage in the stories, um, there's almost always a moment like this where Holmes has a quiet, uh, I wouldn't call it a soliloquy, but it's kind of like a monologue about how clever he is, right? And he, he does this at least in one or on one facet of the investigation, he will show off these types of deductive skills. And it's almost like the readers need it now. Like, that's the formula, right? Yes, it is the formula, indeed. Anyway, that's that's just a bit. I mean, it goes on. He, he has another uh, verse or two of that. But, um, yeah, he deduces all kinds of things from that hat, several of which are right and several of which are just biased, bigoted commentary, I guess. Anyway, um, I, I liked Holmes in this story, although I found him more humorous than he was useful. Um, he wasn't much more than a police detective, really. He, yes. he needed the commissioners step up with the carbuncle when it was discovered in the goose. And from there, he 
went from A to B to C. He did good work on those steps. Watson just basically trundled along with him, did very little yes. at all. Uh, I did think that the principles were good, but there was nothing really standout for me. I liked the turn at the end where Holmes had the power of this man's future in his hands and he decided it wasn't right to punish him when he was in possession of the jewel. This guy was awfully contrite. A young man broke down like a teenager would when he was forced to acknowledge you know, the seriousness of his behavior. And yes. all things considered, uh, James Ryder... Uh, is going to have... James Ryder, sorry, not Matthew Ryder. He's going to have a better life because of what happened to him, and John Horner is going to be released because there's no evidence against him. So I went uh, I went for a three on my principles here. They, it was it was fine. Nothing spectacular, just just fine. I think on the basis of the, the ship of Holmes' uh, charity, and, and Holmes, you know, just being very astute and being on the top of his game, game but really not having to show those deductive skills in a strong way, minus the whole episode with the hat. Uh, I did enjoy his um, talk with uh, Breckenridge. Oh, I thought that was great. Uh, I, I thought that was phenomenal. I, I loved I loved all those moments, but I didn't love them for Holmes so much as I did. Well, I did actually, because he did pull that good gamble over Breckenridge, and that was cool. But uh, yeah, yeah no, no, but maybe, maybe a three is a little bit harsh. You know, he, maybe, but I'm sorry. Sorry, you go ahead. No, no, I I see where you're I see where you're coming from, but um, I found that exchange really amusing, and I liked seeing kind of Sherlock Holmes, the detective, you know, more so than just the calculating machine. And that, that's uh, a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, like this, this is, this is a good have... example. This is a good example of a story that would give readers less of the uh, computer Holmes and more of the man. Exactly, and especially at the end. So yeah, and I, I do agree that. Watson's kind of just being there doesn't really add much to that score in that sense. So I feel that um, because of the, of the change at the end and because of that exchange with Breckenridge, um, which, which I'll go over, actually, I think, because it's just an amusing little episode, the, uh, the, the conversation. So they show up at Covent Garden here uh, for, to, and speak to Breckenridge about the geese. Good evening. It's a cold night, said Holmes. The salesman nodded and shot a questioning glance at my companion. Sold out geese, I see, continued Holmes, pointing at the bare slabs of marble. Let you have 500 tomorrow morning. That's no good. Well, there Well, there are some on the stall with the gas flare. Ah, but I was recommended to you. Who by? The landlord of the Alpha. Oh, yes. I sent him a couple of dozen. Fine birds they were, too. Now, where did you get them from? To my surprise, the question provoked a burst of anger from the salesman. Now then, mister, said he, with his head cocked and his arms akimbo, what are you driving at? Let's have it straight now. It is straight enough. I should like to know who sold you the geese which you supplied to the Alpha. Well then, I shan't tell you. So now. Oh, it is a matter of no importance, but I don't know why you should be so warm over such a trifle. Warm? You'd be as warm, maybe, if you were as pestered as I am. When I pay good money for a good article, there should be an end of business. But it's where where are these geese, and who did you sell these geese to? And what will you take for take for the geese? One would think they were the only geese in the world to hear the fuss that is made over them. Well, I have no connection with any other people who have been making inquiries, said Holmes carelessly. If you want to tell us the bed is off, that is all. But I'm always ready to back my opinion on a matter of fowls, and I have a fiver on it that the bird I ate is country bread. Well, then, you've lost your fiver for its town bread, snapped the salesman. It's nothing of the kind. I say it is. I don't believe it. 
Do you think you know more about fowls than I, who have handled them ever since I was a nipper? I tell you, all those birds that went to the Alpha were town-bred. You'll never persuade me to believe that. Will you bet, then? It's merely taking your money, for I know that I am right. But I'll have a sovereign on with you, just to teach you not to be obstinate. The salesman chuckled grimly. Bring me the books, Bill, said he. The small boy brought round a small, thin volume and a great, greasy-backed one, laying them out together beneath the hanging lamp. Now then, Mr. Cockshore, said the salesman, I thought that I was out of geese, but before I finish, you'll find that there is still one left in, the sh- in my shop. You see this little book? Well, that's a list of folk from whom I buy. Do you see? Well then, here on this page are the country folk, and the numbers after their names are where their accounts are in the big ledger. Now then, you see this other page in red ink? Well, that is a list of my own town suppliers. Now look at the third name. Just read it out to me. Mrs. Oakshot, 117 Brixton Road, 249, read Holmes. Quite so. Now turn that up in the ledger. Holmes turned to the page indicated. Here you are. Mrs. Oakshot, 117 Brixton Road, Egg and Poultry Supplier. Now then, what's the last entry? December 22nd, 24 geese at 7 shillings, 6. Quite so. There you are. And underneath? Sold to Mr. Windigate of the Alpha at 12s. What do you have to say now? Sherlock Holmes looked deeply chagrined. He drew a sovereign from his pocket and threw it down upon the slab, turning away with the air of a man whose disgust is too deep for words. A few yards off, he stopped under a lamppost and laughed in a hearty, noiseless fashion which was peculiar to him. Uh, that's just an example funny, of Holmes, be- Holmes being an asshole. Yeah, but I liked it. I'm really glad you read that out oh, it was, um, because it, 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 was it did suit. It was a good exchange. And I thought that... Um, well, D, by the way, is dimes, shillings and dimes. But I oh, thought, okay. I thought it would be cool. Um, I've got a little note here. I'm going to read you this bit in uh, in my annotations. Uh, it was observed that in terms of the sovereign, the value of a sovereign, because that's what he puts down for the bet, right? Yes. Um, he says that, um, uh, yeah, Holmes, who had no client to cover his expenses, must have been financially solvent enough at this time to spend a sovereign, which was a pound at the time, almost twice what Watson earned daily at 11 shilling and six dimes per day as a soldier. So this is quite a quite a, ma- a wager he's putting down. Indeed. And so I wonder if, and th- we didn't talk about this, but I wonder, does he keep the thousand pound reward for himself? Well, I like, as he said in one of the other stories, he said that uh, the case is his, the investigation is, is his reward, right? And his own you reward, can compensate yeah. me you can compensate me for whatever things, ever expenses that I have during the case of the investigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. He's almost he's almost like pro bono because he's bored. That's essentially what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, I mean, he's, he doesn't need the money, I guess, but it's cool. Anyway, right. Um, yeah, so, okay, what did you go for? What was your number? You, you've convinced me, Josh. I'm going 3.5 now at the principles on the strength of Holmes and the way he just barters with people and, and chats his way around London. Uh, what would you what you go for then? I went for four. You went for four. Uh, in terms of the investigation, although it, although in my mind there's not a lot of investigation like we are used to seeing with Holmes, you know, putting together these really obscure links and and you know making the puzzle clear. He just does detective work. I really liked the way the story was written. I found it quite engaging to be potting about in these different parts of London and, and to, be yes. getting, to be getting not just a bit of exposition about the frost on the windows and Christmas time and, and uh, you know, all the, the Covent Garden uh, <clears throat> stalls with the, the, 
the vegetables and the meat and all this stuff. I thought that was really quite evocative. And I like the conversations. You do see Holmes and Watson working in kind of different ways, just talking to regular folk and getting out around. And I thought that the story was clever. Like, I did think this is an immature a crime, but I also feel like it is kind of believable. And I, I read... I read this a little differently, I think, than you. I didn't see so much that he was trying to smuggle the gem in the goose. What I saw is that, you know, he's he's walking around the city with a hot a hot gem. He basically wants to find a way to transport it more safely, so he uses the goose to to do that, you know? But Well smuggling wouldn't that be smuggling? I guess so. I I suppose I'm thinking like sp- in, the, in the strictest yes. term, not more so yeah. in the much more complicitly criminal term. Yes, I think you're correct. You you would be literally correct, I guess, because I, I guess, I mean, to, to my mind, James Ryder doesn't know what he's going to do with this gem. How's he going to make any money out of it? Everybody knows it's stolen. Like, is he is he just going to steal it and return it? Yeah, that's Or, that's or is, he gonna, is he going to get that, is he going to get that seedy friend of his to go do that? Because, I mean, if he, an employee of the hotel, returns it to the woman who was in the hotel, he, is he going to be suspected? He probably yeah, and it makes you wonder too. Like, what he—he uh, he obviously felt guilt about Horner too, and what he's going to, and, and why Horner's going to take the fall for him. So obviously, it's possible that there could be moments where he doesn't know what to do with the gem as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the moral breakdown at the end, and the way Holmes treated him, I did like the way the story wrapped up. I thought it was a suitable little holiday yarn. Um, I enjoyed reading it, and that's part of our investigation, Mark, remember, is kind of the aesthetic yes. and, and how the style works. I enjoyed the story. I thought it was refreshing, given what we had in the last three. Uh, a little a little easier to digest, if you pardon the pun. And uh, I went I went for a four, solid four on this one. I did, I did, I did, as, I did as well, Scott. I found that uh, it, while the mystery wasn't uh, as, as intricate as previous ones that we dealt with, uh, and where the nuances weren't really left there for us, that they were more just for us to kind of follow on the wild goose chase, as you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very enjoyable and amusing, and, it, and there was a great, there was sentiment to the story, and I just, you know, for a Christmas time um, themed story, uh, it it carried that off beautifully. And uh, like we said, the investigation and the narrative are really the same thing when it comes to our grading. And I feel like you that the um, the investigation um, was was a good old yarn. It was entertaining, and uh, I think as a whole, that's all that matters. So four yep. for me. Cool. Um, in terms of the perpetrator, well, James Ryder <laughs> and um, uh, what's James her name? Ryder, yes. Yeah, James Ryder and Catherine Cusack. The two of them working together here. Uh, this is interesting too, because although he is technically the the perpetrator. And so, too, is Catherine, although she has no role in the story beyond a name dropped in a sentence. There's not there's not really a lot given to them, what they're going to do together, uh, why they are working together, what what's their story. And so I took a bit of creative license in imagining how, you know, Catherine and James would have maybe had a drink late at night after the countess had gone to bed down in the bar of the hotel talking about this and oh by the way you know my mistress my lady has got the countess has got this beautiful gem and we could we could get a you know if we stage a theft maybe we can get some reward money for it and blah 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 well look um in terms of the perpetrators yeah he he was cool she was cool but i went 2.5 because they were just middling really and they were there, there wasn't enough development of the character beyond their immaturity or his particularly i think i went with three okay. but i agree with everything that you said but I just kind of liked, uh, 
I found him a, a refreshing type of villain, and uh, he had a pretty good arc, I think, as 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 a perpetrator. And uh, it was different from what we had before, so I, I appreciated that. So I gave it a full three. All right, cool. Now, The Environs is an interesting one for me. Um, I scored this once. I went back. I scored it twice. And then I thought about it again this morning before we met online. And mm. I stay, I'm, I'm staying true. I, I can't change my score on this. And I, I don't really know I can properly explain it. But... I went okay. First of all, I'll tell you, I went four point five on the environs of this story, and I think it's because I've been to some of the places in London that were cited here. I know how these pubs feel, you know, when 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 they're described with the swinging doors and stuff. I like that. I love the Covent Garden scene. I thought that was phenomenal, um, not because it was so brilliantly rendered, just because it was properly still. It is properly still what Covent Garden's like. I mean, you can still find. Um, you know, butchers, and you can still find polterers and things like that in and around the area. And of course, now it's it's more modern. You can also buy your laptop computers and stuff there too. But there is that real sense of it's just a sense of kind of a community market about that big important place in London. I love that Holmes is out there. I like the winter streets. I felt like this was a a good, really deliberate rendering of London in December and. Like I said, I, I reflected on this a couple of times because I wasn't sure why the point five was there, but I'm putting that point five in there just for feeling because I think I was ready for a story that gave me more of the streets like I had seen in an earlier look. Uh, sorry, in one of the earlier texts. I don't remember which one it was. Uh, Might have been a study in Scarlet. I really enjoyed that. But anyway, or a sign of a sign of four. Sign for of sure. four. Yeah, one of them. But I went four point five, and I I know that's high compared to what I've given in the past. But I felt for this story, the environment really worked for me. Yeah, environment was the strongest part of the story. I think it really helped with the, the atmosphere. Um, we, you know, if you put the comic nature of, of the tale aside, and environment was a big factor in in uh, in this, and it gave me the, it gave me to come to the conclusion of the exact same score you had, four point okay. five. Wow, okay. uh, just just the atmosphere and, and the, the description of Covent Gardens, of the streets of London in the winter time, um, even this home's apartment, uh, everything just seemed to connect beautifully, like in a rendered world, you know, in your mind. And and Arthur Conan Doyle's writing did that, like it, it captured it so much in that way that even though I haven't been the places you've been to, I could easily visualize it. Mm-hmm. And that to me was a was uh, you know that that brought the score to the top there, well near the top I guess in this case. So the London, so London is definitely a character, in particularly Christmas time London in this story, and uh, it might be actually like the protagonist of this story if you think about it, because it's the atmosphere of London at Christmas time that makes Holmes comes to the conclusion uh, that he does at the end of the tale, which also decides uh, the end of uh, writer's arc as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we so also 4. got 5. to see we also got to see Oakshot's backyard and the home she stayed in and all Oakshot, that kind of yeah. stuff. You know? Yeah. Um, Another amusing scene was was Ryder recounting the story of him and uh, and his sister discussing the geese, okay. and he's like, "I don't want this geese. Yeah. Um, I want that. I want that other geese." She's like, and she's like, "Okay, well, she's she kind of like confused as to why he is the way that he is." And but uh, this geese, we, we we made it big for you, and so it'd be a have extra meat in it. Like we did this for you, and you want this <laughs> this other thin, thin geese? Like I would be really pissed off if this was my little brother that I was kind of like, that was dependent upon me and, you know, or uh, mooching off of me in that way. Yeah. And he says to Holmes and Watson at the, or towards the end, he said, um, uh, my sister thinks that I'm going mad. Sometimes I think that I am myself. (laughs) 
I just like the notion of just Holmes like tapping and like imp- like he's getting annoyed by the end of this conversation how like incompetent <laughs> and, and, yeah. and how he, he just realizes that he has not netted uh, you know <laughs> yeah he's like a, uh, a schoolmaster just dealing with this petulant kid who's now turned to he's trying the strategy of, of putting the tears on right yeah I liked how he instead of like just telling him like just 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 like go politely he just like get out and just like you know and and scares him probably probably alarm Watson and then but then but then he goes back to smoking his pipe you know yeah you know what I think I did I did him a favor he did well Cool. We see eye to eye on that one. In terms of uh, supporting players uh, to finish off our pipes on the blue carbuncle, I went three and a half. And although there aren't really a lot of them here, John Horner, we don't know anything about him. He's just this poor plumber who goes into the uh, Countess's room to solder up uh, a vent or something like that and ends up getting framed for this. We've got um, the other girl, Catherine Cusack, by name only. Um, mm. Again, doesn't do. M- I'm sure there's something in these names, you know, that Conan Doyle was picking out. Of- he wasn't just picking them out of the air. He was. He was. There's a reason that his villains are Ryder and Cusack, and I'm. I'm just. I. I would like to know, what um, you know, the reasons were for him choosing these names. But anyway, Breckenridge gets all the uh, 3.5 here. Uh, I'd like to give more to the players than that because I think on his own he's deserving of more. This is a character that I would like to follow in like a spinoff or something. But the truth is. You can't do that. Like I, I couldn't at least bring myself to give more than three point five to the secondary players when there's only him in it, really. Yeah, I would add. I mean, there's Peterson as well, and uh, he seems yeah, like Peterson's kind of... okay. He is cool. You're right. Peterson is cool, the commissioner, but um, he he's all like his role is just I'm giving you a hat, and holy shit, I found a gem. Like there's really nothing more to him there. <laughs> True, true. Uh, but I also, I also got a got a, I got a good view of Miss Oakshot, uh, Ryder's sister in in that okay, uh, okay. Pre- in that presentation as well. So I, I don't know. I just found it was a very colorful cast in this one. Mm-hmm. Not like in terms of detail, but I, I guess. Yeah, they are characters. You're right. They are characters. Yeah, it was like I said. It's very Dickensian this particular story. It is. You're right. It is. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, so, I'm going to stick. I'm going to stick to three five. But I, I totally see where you're going. Yeah, I'm going to stay with my four. Okay, cool. That brings your score then, Josh, to a uh, one, two, three, four, nineteen point five for the blue carbuncle for you, and I'm on eight, uh, ten, five, fourteen, and I'm on eighteen. All right. So on to the adventure of the speckled band. Mm-hmm. 